Okay, let me tell you about what this, what this series is about. The uh, lunch series entitled Heschel, Cook, and Freud, Three Twentieth Century Jewish Thinkers on Religion and National Jewish Identity. Today is part one of three, Pathos and Prophecy. And I'm not going to tell you, well, the lecture series examines some of the central issues of contemporary Judaism raised by three of the 20th century's greatest thinkers. Who is Dr. Alec Isaacs? He is one of the greatest thinkers of the 21st century. He's a, I have to read it because half the room doesn't know who you are. Scott Spitzer has never met you. Scott, that's Dr. Alec Isaacs. Scott is a professor as well. He's at uh, Cal State Fullerton. Political science. Dr. Alec Isaacs is a scholar at the Shalom Harbor Institute um, Center for Advanced Jewish Studies, where he serves, he's going to heckle himself, where he serves as director of their Advanced Beit Midrash program and is a lecturer at the Melton Center for Jewish Education at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. He's an educational philosopher, Scott, who is interested in ways in which ideas can be relevant and meaningful in contemporary Jewish life. In recent years, his research and writing has focused on the implications of Israel for Jewish life and peace. After settling in Israel in 1986, Dr. Isaacs earned his PhD in Jewish history from the Hebrew University. He just completed a book entitled Prophetic Peace, Scott, Prophetic Peace, I know you're into that, which, uh, following upon his experiences as a combat soldier in the Second Lebanon War, reevaluates the place of peace in Jewish thought. Alec lives in Jerusalem with his wife, Shuli, and their five children, ages 15 down to three. He's happy to see that we do have sun in Orange County after his first week of rain. If we still need more seats, uh, you, can, you can probably cannibalize David. Hold, David, don't go anywhere. Can we cannibalize from another room? Okay. David, everyone, please, let's thank David as the executive director of the Bureau of Education. Not, yes, not only for his help in getting chairs, but for his tremendous work with the Bureau of Jewish Education and for co-sponsoring today's series. And... Please remember, we have a, this is the lunch series. We have a breakfast series. This one is oversubscribed. Our evening series is fully subscribed. And our breakfast series indicates that many of you do not get up early in the morning. It's at 8.15, people. Get out of bed. Come here. Well, at 8, you could miss an hour of work. This is more important. There's only three days you're going to do it. With that, Dr. Isaacs, the, um, the non-lectern is yours. Thank you very much. Hi, everybody. You're taller than I am. This needs to come down a little bit for me. Is that okay? Can you hear me? Good. Don't know about that breakfast series. Don't know if I get up that early. If, we can, if everyone can agree not to come, he'll never know it didn't take place. I'll be here. <laughs> well, thank you for those lovely words of introduction. I can't hear that blurb again. If I'd, known, if I'd known when I wrote it that it was going to be read out so many times, I think I might have given it more attention. Um, maybe God said the same thing about the Torah. Who knows? But, um, but it is lovely, lovely to be here, although I do feel that Ari is in breach of contract. He promised me sun and surf in Southern California, and we haven't had much of that, but it is lovely, lovely to be here. I feel very warmly welcome by the community, and it's a pleasure not just to get to know you all, but I'm starting to recognize faces, and, and soon I'm going to start learning names, and then I'll start learning the names of your grandchildren, and, and then we'll know that we all know each other. So that, that is something that I'm, uh, that I'm looking forward to. Just be warned, if you pull out your pictures, I'll pull out mine. 
my kids. You, well, we won't talk about my kids. Okay, let's get serious. What I, what I would like to talk about today, I, the, the, the idea of a lunch series I found very interesting because I suppose the challenge is to give you indigestion. Um, a kind of intellectual indigestion, and let's hope it doesn't affect your stomachs, but certainly to, to do some thinking and to, and to stir up, to stir up some, uh, some interesting ideas. And what I, what I chose um, for this series was to look at three particular thinkers. Um, I, you need to call them the great thinkers of the 20th century in order to market it. But I've chosen three particular thinkers because I think, I w I think there's a strand um, that I can draw, a line that I can draw between the three of them that connects them, apart from the fact that they are, of course, all three of them Jewish and in different ways have things to say about Judaism. There's also, there's also something about each one of those three thinkers, and today we're going to be talking about Abraham Joshua Heschel, something about each one of those three thinkers that invites us to address the big question that's the question of my whole, of my whole visit here. Okay, so I'm going to say a few meta words about the rationale behind the series, and then we'll jump in to talking about pathos and prophecy and the specifics of Heschel. Before I get started, I always like to quote my wife. You never know if she's watching. You, you really never know if she's watching, so it's important to quote her. Um, she always says that if you stand me in front of a brick wall and tell me to talk to it, I could talk for two or three hours without noticing that it wasn't responding. So I'm just going to talk, but please take a standing invitation from me to interrupt me at any time, ask questions, don't heckle, don't get offended if I don't answer your questions, but I will try. So please put your hands up and ask and, um, and feel free to engage and discuss. You have to announce that Nira is here too. Everyone knows who Nira is. Shalom, Nira. I've heard of bring your own bottle parties, but bring your own chair. Okay, well, the overall question that I am dealing with. Okay, so there's a sitting invitation next door. The overall question that I'm, that I'm trying to address in, in, this, in this trip, in this series, is the question of how we deal in the modern world with a Judaism which has been radically and fundamentally changed by the experience of the establishment of the State of Israel. And what's that got to do with Heschel, you might ask? Good question. I'll get to it in a second. But let me, let me go on this for a minute. The fundamental question of the state, that the State of Israel raises, I think, is how does the Jewish people emerge from a long, long history, not just of not having sovereignty and not having independence, but of not having to deal with the responsibilities of power? How does the Jewish people emerge from a long history of powerlessness and take responsibility for power. Now that is clearly a political question, but it's also a very profound religious question. Because the power structures that come into play when we think about religion can be understood in a very, very imposing way. Often you might encounter an understanding of religion that basically thinks of God as the great, powerful legislator in the sky, right? And this great, 
powerful legislator in the sky has a very long finger and an outstretched arm. And this is the finger and the arm with which the world comes into existence, creation. I tend to dramatize it with students. I get them to stand on a chair and feel for a minute what it feels like to go zap, 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 and make things come into being, All right? Which is basically my way of describing Genesis 1. It was zap, 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 he all, vai he all, right? We have a very, very powerful vision of that kind of God, a very, very powerful vision of the way in which that God commands us and imposes himself upon us, okay? These fundamental experiences of religious life, which understand the fundamental emotion or the, the, the primary characteristic of religious life as that of abeyance and obedience. These fundamental experiences of religious life, I think, are challenged, called into question by the experience of statehood. A religious philosophy that is rooted in religious Power. Today I want to talk about religion, not so much about politics, although there is a connection, inevitably, all the time. But a religious philosophy that is rooted in these kinds of power structures has to take note of itself and be aware of itself in an era in which Jewish power is a reality. Now these are fundamental questions that I think the Jewish people inside the state of Israel have to deal with. Right? But they're fundamental questions to any kind of interaction between religious Jews and secular Jews. They're fundamental questions in, a, in all sorts of interactions between Jews in Israel and Jews in the diaspora, and also internally within American Jewish life. How can we, how can we articulate a kind of Jewish experience that is not simply about obedience, that's not simply about power, but that might be about about something else, okay? Now, that's something else in the thinking of Abraham Joshua Heschel is called pathos, okay? Now, we know the word pathos, and we know what pathos means, and we know when there are moments of pathos in a film or in a play, it's usually when I start taking out my tissues and crying. By the way, if I look as if I'm on the verge of tears, I am emotional and very happy to be here, but it's more the chlorine in the pool that really, <laughs> really got my eyes this morning, so I can't really see any of you, so if... <laughs> If you hold your hands up, you might need to come and slap me on the face. I'm here, I've got a question. But I know that there are people in the room. I can, I can hear the complaints about chairs. So I know that you're here. And if you laugh now and again, it will remind me that you're here. But seriously, pathos, which, is, which really touches or it gives us the possibility of thinking about the religious emotion in different terms, I think is the central and wonderful contribution of Heschel to Jewish thought. Not only is it central and wonderful, I also think it's profoundly authentic within the Jewish tradition. And what I would like to do, surprising as this may sound, and if you stick it out for the three, for the three sessions, what I would like to do is to try and show some fundamental connections between Heschel's notion of pathos and other central ideas in the thinking of Cook and, believe it or not, Freud. Okay, but I'm keeping the Freud one to last because it's a little bit controversial. Anyway, so let's talk a little bit about Heschel. Before, before we, we, we jump into the theology, I want to say one, one, one little word of introduction about Heschel, which is that Heschel, 
I don't know if any of you, if any of you met him or knew him or saw him or remember, remember seeing him on television or, or whatever. Heschel really did have something of a, he really did have something of a prophetic way about him. Right? It, it, there, was, there was clearly, you feel it, I think, in the, in the aura of the personality. Um, but I think you, it, comes, it comes forward very much in, in his writing as well. There's something prophetic about, about Heschel. There's something very, very powerfully and emotionally engaged about Heschel's understanding of religious life and what religion is all about. And there's also a very clear sense of the political implications of Heschel's understanding of religious Judaism, which played out in his own very public political activities as one of those, one of those people who demonstrated very early against, against racism in America and who was very much part of the, the anti-Vietnam lobby. I'm not going to go into his political career. I don't, so much, I don't really want to talk about it, but I do want it to be there in the back of your minds so as you can recognize what I think are the very profound connections between his religious thinking and, his, and their political implications. Okay? Right. Pathos. Funny thing about pathos, it's a Greek word that, that he uses here. But if there's one thing I would say about pathos, the first thing I would say about pathos, if we talk about it philosophically, is that it's an anti-Hellenistic term. Very funny that he chose the word pathos to describe a, a take on Judaism, which seems to be exactly the opposite of, of Hellenism. Where do we see that? If you look at your handouts, you'll see, you'll see, um, you'll see the, the first chapter of his book, The Prophets. What manner of a man is the prophet? Okay. Now, you don't need to actually read the handout just yet because I want to read you something else first. <laughs> just you know, know that it's there, acknowledge it, see it on the page, start fighting over who's going to, have a, who's going to see it. And as you're figuring that out, I'd like to read for you a little passage. A little passage from the same book, which I have here, although I'm not finding it this moment. Give me half a second. A little passage from the same book, The Prophets, which appears in his introduction. It appears in his introduction. It's not in your handout. I only want to read a sentence. It doesn't even connect to our subject for, to, for today. I just have to read it because I want to make an aside about Heschel, which is to tell you that I think Heschel is a master of the art of writing the first sentences of books. It's a tremendous skill. You know, the best of times and the worst of times and those kinds of phrases. Heschel was brilliant at writing the first sentences of books. And I just have to share this one because I think it's a cracker. Heschel opens, opens his prophets with the following sentence. I love this. If I haven't made it clear, I love this. <laughs> this book is about some of the most disturbing people who have ever lived. <laughs> Isn't that great? Isn't that great? You just, okay, what's going on here? I have to read more. This book is about some of the most disturbing people who have ever lived. I told you about indigestion. The men whose inspiration brought the Bible into being. The men whose image is our refuge in distress and whose voice and vision sustain our faith. 
fabulous opening paragraph. But it also, like a good opening paragraph, not only captures our attention, it also, in a very subtle and in a very clever way, tells us what his overall thesis for the book really is. Because I don't know if you've read the prophets, not Heschel's version of it, but the Bible. You might have a sense that they're not disturbing people. There are, there are spiritual inspiration. But Heschel gives us, gives us this insight into those very people whose spiritual inspiration is rooted in their ability to disturb us, to give us a sense of discomfort. And it's that sense of discomfort that I think is essential to the way in which Heschel goes on to portray phenomenologically the phenomenon of latter prophecy. When I say latter prophecy, I'm referring specifically to the books of the Bible that start with Yeshayahu, that start with Isaiah, and technically speaking, go all the way on to Malachi, the last of the Triasar, the last of the 12 minor prophets. I say technically speaking because I think the phenomenology that he is describing goes on and applies to, to other figures in, Jewish, in biblical literature. Certainly it could be applied to Daniel, certainly it could be applied to Eov, to Job, and to other, char to other characters who the, who the canonizers of the Bible chose not to call prophets. But the phenomenology that Heschel, that Heschel is portraying and that he is describing is really significantly, um, I think it's a very significant insight into what they're all about as well. So what is this pathos that Heschel is talking about? What is this phenomenology of the prophet? Or maybe I could phrase the question, what manner of a man is the prophet? Okay, now I know that's a very good articulation of the question. That's what he called the chapter. What manner of a man is the prophet? Oh, that, that, that didn't expect that. There we go. So let's have a look and see how Heschel introduces us to the idea of who the prophet is and what manner of a man is the prophet. What manner of the man is the prophet? Are you with me? Everyone following? A student of philosophy. Now we get back to this Greek issue. A student of philosophy who turns from the discourses of the great metaphysicians to the orations of the prophets may feel as if he were going from the realm of the sublime to an area of trivialities. This guy knew how to write. He did it this well in four languages. It drives me mad. Instead of dealing with the timeless issues of being and becoming, of matter and form, of definitions and demonstrations, he is thrown into orations about widows and orphans, about the corruption of judges and affairs of the marketplace. Instead of showing us a way through the elegant mansions of the mind, the prophets take us to the slums. Isn't that good? Is it just me? Let me do that one again. Can't, can't, can't. I have to do it again. Instead of showing us a way through the elegant mansions of the mind, the prophets take us to the slums. The world is a proud place full of beauty, but the prophets are scandalized and rave as if the whole world were a slum. They make much ado about paltry things, lavishing excessive language upon trifling subjects.
What if somewhere in Palestine poor people have not been treated properly by the rich? So what if some old women found pleasure and edification in worshipping the Queen of Heaven? Why such immoderate excitement? Why such intense indignation? Now, that, this, this is a phenomenal paragraph, and I'm going to spend some time explaining it. I think that the first, the first contrast that Heschel is presenting us with in this paragraph, and that plays itself out, again, all the way through the book, is the contrast between the philosopher and the prophet. There's a lot of Ps. Pro philosopher, philosopher, prophet, pathos. A lot of Ps. I like alliterations. The philosopher and the prophet. Now, if I can give you, if I can give you a, a portrayal of the philosopher for a minute, in the Greek sense of the word, what the philosopher tries to do is to lodge his experience of the world in generalities that are sufficiently broad to qualify for this category of metaphysics. Now, the image that you might have, you know, the difference between the prophet wandering around the marketplace and the, and the philosopher wandering around the marketplace. Of course, the first philosopher you're going to think of wandering around the marketplace is Socrates. Well, at least as Plato introduces us to Socrates. And Socrates, as I understand him, forgive me, was a professional pain in the neck, right? <laughs> that was the purpose of the Socratic dialogue to be a professional pain in the neck. So you get into a conversation with Socrates, unexpected, and he asks you, oh, how are you doing today? And you say, I'm good. And Socrates goes, good, huh? And what do you think that means? <laughs> are you, you know, good, it's better than bad. Oh, bad, that's interesting. What does that one mean? So then you try and give some kind of an answer, and you'll say, well, good is you know, common prosperity. Oh, you think prosperity is connected to good? And you know this process. You've seen the Socratic method. We've all been its victims in school, right? When you are presented with a term, you try to define it. And as you define it, the assumption is that you refine it. And as you refine it, you reach a level of understanding that you can then lodge in eternity. It's perhaps a little bit difficult to illustrate this idea when we talk about when we talk about you know abstract concepts of good and evil. Let's go for something simpler. Uh, let's go for a pen. Okay, here's a pen, and I will ask you, what is a pen? And you'll tell me, well, looking at this one, it's a black V. It says V7 on the side, and you whatever. You'll give a description of it, and then I'll pick up another one, and I'll say, well, is this a pen? And you'll say, of course it's a pen, but it doesn't look at all like this one. And then you'll say, well, what they have in common is their, their use. And gradually, bit by bit, you will try and lodge your understanding of what this thing is in an ultimate metaphysical notion of the pen. Okay? That's what Greek philosophy, thank you. That's what Greek philosophy is really all about. It's about the profound definition of concepts and objects to a level that qualifies for the idea of the thing in eternity, the platonic ideal. And this is what Heschel is referring to when he talks about the glorious mansions of metaphysics. And when we think about the glorious mansions of metaphysics, we then look at the philosopher king. And the philosopher king looks at society and he says, okay, how are we going to move this society forward? We all have this sense. 
Perhaps, maybe it's just me. But we have a sense of angst about our dissatisfaction with society and we want to improve it. But in order to improve it, we have to have a clear vision of the good. And with a clear vision of the good, with a clear understanding of that good, we can then look at society and organize it and structure it so that it will serve a very general and very common sense of the good. I grew up in welfare society, Britain. And the idea in the Britain that I grew up in was let's see what resources we have, right? particularly the National Health Service. I grew up, my father was an ideological pioneer of the National Health Service. So I grew up with this philosophy that basically said, let's look at what we have and let's try and figure out how we're going to distribute it fairly amongst the people who don't have. So you can have this much, and you can have this much, and you can have this much, and you can have this much. And if we distribute it appropriately and correctly, then we will serve the common good. We'll move as broadly as possible towards fulfilling a common good. Now let's talk about Isaiah. He didn't have a clue about any of this. If you were to live like Isaiah, you would not serve the common good. Just imagine. It's a kind of a first come, first serve world, but you're, you're walking down the street, right? And you encounter somebody. And this somebody needs something. And you, you only know about that person because you encountered them. You don't have an overall, you don't have an overall statistic. Right? So let's imagine the philosopher and the prophet walking down the street and meeting a widow in need of food. So the philosopher says, how much do you need? Let me, let me note that down. Let me discover whether or not you're worthy. What, what have you done with previous donations that you have received? Did you spend them on food or did you buy drugs? How, have you, how, 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 how do you contribute to the society around you? It, to what extent... Do I know that my invested dollar in you, right? Let's call it a dinar, so we'll sound biblical for a moment. Oh, I invested shekel in you, or whatever it is that I give you, will actually serve the common good. That's reasonable strategic thinking. It's the political thinking of political power, ladies and gentlemen. The prophet stands in front of this woman morally naked and is scandalized by her condition claimed by her condition. He looks at her and he is furious at a world in which she is left in poverty. He's furious. He's out of control. He's emotionally effervescent, overflowing, and claimed. Not in a general sense, not in a political sense, not in a philosophical sense, not in a metaphysical sense, but in a very, very directly intersubjective, interpersonal sense. Somebody is in front of him, somebody needs, and that a need must be attended to. This is Isaiah. This is the prophet. He is immoderate. 
Look at Heschel's words again. I'll give you a second to have a look. He is immoderate. He is disproportionate. He seems out of touch with a general picture of reality. The prophet is scandalized. Do we want our political leaders to be scandalized? We can toy with the idea for a bit, but if we think about it seriously, that's not the way we think of successful political leadership. Cool down, calm down, get a sober picture, see the big picture, make your calculations. You've got, you've got collective resources in your hands. Make sure you invest them for the common good. Prophets are the last people who we would think of as leaders or as political leaders. They're the last people who we can think of as dictating with power how we are supposed to live, at least in Heschel's portrayal of them. They are completely, so it seems, out of touch with human reality. Let's have a look at the text. Let's have another little look at the sentences where he says this. The world is a proud place full of beauty. I'm just reading again the passages that we've, already that we've already read. The world is a proud place full of beauty, but the prophets are scandalized and rave as if the whole world were a slum. Is the whole world a slum? No, it's not. Does the prophet perceive reality correctly? No, he doesn't. The prophet does not get it. He doesn't see the picture. When he encounters one slum, at that moment he is so claimed by it and so consumed by it that he sees nothing else. He's a disproportionate maniac. But Heschel is presenting us with a vision of this disproportionate maniac as appropriately disturbing. And let's see a little bit more about what that might mean. They make much ado about paltry things, lavishing excessive language upon trifling subjects. What if somewhere in Palestine poor people are suffering? Big deal. Get a picture. Get a hold on reality. That's the world. The prophet cannot come to terms with the world. Now, one of the things that I think is very, very striking is that the prophet, rather than looking at generalities, rather than looking at big ideas, the prophets who we might think of as those very people who are going to be thinking on the highest possible level. They're the people who, who we might imagine. It's not exactly the way that Heschel describes it. But we might imagine that they're the people who convey to us the word of God. They speak in their mouths the words of God. We would expect them to have these incredibly broad pictures of the, of the, of the highest concepts of the world. But that's not the way the prophets speak. Look at the prophets. They talk about the details. Hear this. You who trample upon the needy. I'm reading on from Amos. This is Bible now. And bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over, that we may all sell grain? And the Sabbath, that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the aphas small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the refuse of the wheat. Indeed, the sort of crimes and even the amount of delinquency that fill the prophets of Israel with dismay do not 
go beyond that which we, the rest of us, people who live without a prophetic consciousness, regard as normal, as typical ingredients of social dynamics. Anyone ever encountered somebody who seems to be a little bit prophetic? Have you ever had that experience? In, in our societies, I mean, I've, I've had these kinds of encounters now and again. I have a friend. He's actually called Amos. <laughs> he just happens to be called Amos. What? Well, he's a rather interesting fellow. He's got this ridiculous, uncompromising vision of social justice. The guy drives you nuts. You can't sit in a restaurant and have a meal with him without being guilty about somebody who paid for the food too much or somebody who died for the food or something that went wrong so you could eat the food or some eco dollar that shouldn't have gone where it went in order for you to enjoy the food. And you can't talk about a football game and you can't talk about a basketball game and you can't talk about even the publication of a book without, being, without him driving a hole in your head about somebody who's been downtrodden and somebody who's been pushed aside. I don't know how the guy lives. It seems, it seems, it, it, it really does drive you nuts. And you know what? That's the overall response that people tend to have to prophetic characters. Pro prophets are not, are not popular people. They're disturbing people. We don't like them. They annoy us because they don't have a real grip on reality. Yes. Good question. I can't speak for the philosopher. I think the prophet does. I think the prophet does. We'll talk about the prophet. We'll talk about the prophet in a minute. But yes, of course he does. But he, he might give her all of his shekels. And if he gives her all of his shekels, when he meets the next one, he's got nothing left. And, there's, and there is, I think it's very important that we recognize that if we were to build a society of prophets, if we were to take the prophet as an educational ideal and train all of our children to be prophets, you know, at first thought, oh, wouldn't that be great? You know, we'd all be in contact with God. It was super fabulous. We'd all be, we'd all be moved by justice and we would be nuts. It would be impossible to live. The proposal that the prophet should become the model for the entirety of society is not, is not realistic. It's not desirable. So the question that we need to ask is, what is the role of the prophet in our society? What does the prophet do? Now, before I answer that question, or give you... Heschel's answer for that question. I'm, I've actually, I have a habit. I hope that I won't get punished by the trees in, the, um, in, in, in South America when I visit there. But I have a habit of copying text to give you a chance to go back and have a look for yourselves. We're not going to actually plow through all of this material and read it in one go. I've given you a little, a little chapter, the first chapter of Heschel, because I think it portrays his phenomenology in, a, in, a, in a, a wonderful way. It might inspire you to read the whole book. Maybe some of you have read the whole book. It will, if nothing else, give you an opportunity to read it, understand it for yourselves, and discover how inappropriately I presented it to you. One way or another, one way or another, it's a gift, it's a gift from us to you. One of the things that Heschel talks about when he talks about the prophet, and I think this is a very, very important idea. The prophet, I'm going to make it worse before it gets better, so hang on. I hope the indigestion is not too severe. But it's going to get better in the end, I promise. But I'm going to make it worse now. The prophet's not just impractical. If he was just impractical, it would be easy. 
right? We could, we could kind of dismiss him. It's worse than that. We can't understand the prophets either. It's not just, it's not just, the, it's not just that we can't understand, we can't apply what they're saying. We actually can't even figure out what they're talking about half of the time. And just in case you think you can, the prophets make it very, very clear that you can't. And they say it over and over and over and over again. Heschel calls this, his, he has a wonderful phrase for this. It makes you think of, of, you know, of dog whistles. But Heschel says that the prophet's speech is an octave too high. Isn't that a wonderful phrase? It's, it's there. It's a kind of a screechy. But you can't, you can't really hear it because it's an octave too high. I'm sorry about that. that was, it wasn't static from the mic. It was me making noises that were an octave too high. You can't hear, you can't hear the prophet speak. Now, if there's one thing that characterizes the prophet, and Heschel got this perfectly, and some would say it was something of an excuse that, you know, a self-comforting device for a man who felt he wasn't being listened to. But if there's something that characterizes the prophet, it is his self-professed inability to speak. Prophets don't know how to speak. There are so many examples of this. The most striking example is, of course, the prophet of all prophets, Moshe Rabbeinu. That's the first, right? That's the most striking. And the Aral Sfatayim, I don't know how to speak. It's the first thing we're told about Moshe. Well, the first thing Moshe says to God when he's given a prophetic vision, he's given a prophetic function, go and preach to the people, let my people go, right? You can imagine how impressed Pharaoh was when this stammering man comes in and he can't speak. You know, we expect from political leaders oratory. So the first thing we expect is charisma. The prophets, the prophets can't pull that one off. But just in case a prophet comes along who does know how to speak, take, for example, and this is my favorite example, Isaiah. Right? I think I already mentioned this in one lecture or another. But Isaiah 6 is, I think, one of the most striking phenomenological passages in prophetic literature, and Heschel reads it brilliantly, not in this particular chapter. But Isaiah 6 tells the story. It's so weird. Isaiah is like walking along the road, and two seconds later, he's in heaven. And he has this image. And in this image, he stands in front of, the, he stands in front of God. Right? And when he's given his prophetic purpose, Isaiah is worried that his mouth is impure. So a flying angel, a seraph, comes over and burns his mouth. Right? And once his mouth is burned, this is an image which, of course, is repeated in the Midrash that tells us about the, the, the origins of Moshe's speech impediment, right? That he played with the fire and the coals as a child. That Midrash is clearly lifting from Isaiah 6, right? Isaiah then, unable to speak with a burnt mouth, is told by God, your mouth is pure, go and preach to the people. And then God says to him, and by the way, you're going to preach, but they're not going to listen. You're going to show them things, but I'm going to blind their eyes so as they won't be able to see. It's a little bit like me talking to that brick wall, maybe. But prophets talk and cannot be heard. Think of Jonah. That's probably the most famous example. 
Jonah doesn't want to be a prophet because he realizes that he's got one of two options and either way he's going to lose. If they listen, if the people of Nineveh listen and repent, then he was lying when he told them it was going to rain in Southern California. When he told them it was that it was going, the sun was going to shine. If if they do listen, then he's screwed. If they don't listen, he's also screwed. There's no because one way or another, either he promises them that repentance will work, or he tells them that God is angry with them. One way or another, he's not going to be able to speak. And God says to him, "It isn't about you, Jonah." It's a very, very difficult experience to know that the whole purpose of what you have to say is to present to people a reality that they are never going to be able to comprehend. The fundamental experience of the prophet, which is the experience of prophecy, drives the prophet apart from everybody else. Why can't other people understand prophets? Because they're not prophets. If you're not a prophet, if you haven't got prophetic experience, then who's going to believe you when you tell the people there's a huge flying snake above your heads that's about to destroy you, and if you don't repent and listen to the words of God, you're going to be finished? I don't see no snake. What are you talking about? I don't understand. I don't understand how you can honestly be so claimed by trivialities. That's what the people say to the prophets. I don't understand not only how you can be so claimed by trivialities. I don't understand your perception of reality itself. I don't share any of those experiences. So if there's one thing that characterizes prophets, it's that people don't really listen to them. The funny thing is that the only words of prophecy that are ever listened to anywhere in the Bible, there's five of them. Od arba'im yom nehepachet. In 40 days, Nineveh will be overturned. Jonah, who was complaining about his job, is actually the only one who managed to pull it off. None of the others are listened to. The people don't listen to Isaiah, the people don't listen to Jeremiah, the people don't listen to Ezekiel, the people don't listen to prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. They preach and they preach and they preach and they are not heard. So having, yes. They wanted him off the boat, but he wasn't preaching to them. They were preaching to him. He's the one, at that stage, he is in denial of his prophecy. He seems to have the conception that prophecy is limited to the, is, or confined to the boundaries of the land of Israel. So if I get on a boat and go away from the land of Israel, I can avoid prophecy. And the biblical text is very, very explicit about Jonah's self-denial. It describes how he goes down to the bottom of the boat. It says, Vayered, and then it says again, Vayered, and it says again, Vayered, and finally it says, Vayeradam. Right, that he goes down and down and down and down, and then he falls asleep. And lying in a stupor at the bottom of the boat, Jonah manages to convince himself that he's managed to ex escape from God. And it takes non-Jews watching a storm to say to him what I now say to my kids every morning when I wake them up. Poor kids. Why are you sleeping? Get up and call to your God. They love it when I do that. I do it at 6.15 in the morning. I say to my Hillel, get up. What? 
Oh, yeah. If I was to screech it at them, that would create a wonderful family experience. But that's, that's, that's what the people say to Jonah. They wake him up. It takes a whale of a time to get him out of this, to get him out of this stupor. So the prophets, the prophets are not listened to. So if we have now presented a phenomenology of who the prophet is, the simple question is, what is the purpose of the prophet? Now, Heschel's idea here is absolutely startling. I think it's one of the most brilliant religious insights ever articulated by a religious thinker, certainly in the 20th century. And for this, he has my un un unending gratitude. Heschel articulates a completely different phenomenology of prophecy from the one that I grew up with. And having articulated it, and this is what makes it so wonderful, you can then go back to the Bible, read the Bible, and read it through Heschel's eyes and experience his understanding of the texts authentically. So it really is a wonderful gift. I've built it up now. Let me tell you what it is. Heschel suggests, Heschel suggests that the prophet, in a very, very partial way, conveys to the world a picture, small picture perhaps, of a divine emotion. There are different divine emotions. There's divine love, there's divine anger, there's divine retribution, there's all sorts of, there's all sorts of, there's divine, there's divine empathy, there's divine compassion, there's divine forgiveness, there's divine jealousy. But the prophet, as Heschel understands him, expresses for the world something or a taste of the emotional intensity of God. So when you ask yourself, how does God feel when we serve idols, which is a central theme, God shares with some prophets, not all, and certainly not all at once. If he was to do it to one prophet in one go, I think he would burst. But he picks out different prophets for different emotions in Heschel's analysis. And God shares with a prophet something of the emotional experience of what it's like to be a God looking at the world. Now, if you think about the opening chapters of Isaiah, and they are some of the most radical passages in the whole of the Bible, the opening chapters of Isaiah begin with this striking statement. Look at an animal, a dog. Has anyone here in the room got a dog? Anyone got a dog? Does Only two people? Does your dog know you? Does he know that you are his master or mistress and come wagging with his tail in appreciation for, for all the love that you bestow upon him and give to him? Of course a dog knows that. And so do, so, do, so do donkeys know that. And so do cows know that. And so do all the domestic animals. They all recognize who their master is. But the people, they don't get it. Can you imagine how that feels? I don't want to say anything to you other than to go, Argh! can't you imagine that I f how I feel? Have you no empathy for what it's like to be God? 
And then, you know what? You want to make it worse? You come to the temple and you sacrifice sacrifices and you fast on Yom Kippur and you kill more of my creations because you think you're fulfilling my commandments and you spill their blood all over the place before the vegetarians in the room get too excited. He wants us to do that stuff. But we look at, we look at this happening with a total misunderstanding of what it's all about and why. And God says through Isaiah, this makes me sick. I want you to know that that's how I feel. I can't bear the sight of your disgusting, hypocritical sacrifices. By the way, look at the marketplace over there. You see that woman over there? She has needs. I created her. When you walk past, I don't know how to organize your society, but when you walk past and ignore her, I go nuts. And I want you to know that that's how I feel, because guess what? I created her too. And then comes one of the most striking examples where God says to Hosea, this is, like, this is the best. Heschel here is absolutely virtuous. It's a phenomenal chapter, his discussion of Hosea. He tries to explain to Hosea, you know, when I, when I watch you people worshipping idols, I feel a little bit betrayed, like a husband and a wife, and the wife is cheating on the husband. You don't get it, do you? Okay, let me introduce you to a woman. So God sets up Hosea with a shidduch, right? And then this woman... Read this. It's all in the Bible. I'm not making this up. There's good stuff in the Bible. This woman then betrays Hosea. And Hosea experiences what it is like to be betrayed by a woman who he adores. And God says, now you got it. Now you know who I am. I adore your people. And look what you're doing. It's not so much about commanding. It's not so much about creating a forceful image of a commanding God who speaks through prophets who tell us, this is God's will, do this, do this, do this, and do this. What Heschel gives us is the notion of having a little bit of empathy for how God feels about the way we behave in his world. And that's what he calls Pathos. Pathos is a glimpse of the emotional experience of God. And we have a God who is bursting in the heavens, bursting with love, bursting with hatred, bursting with anger, bursting with constructive desires and destructive desires, all tied up together into this, into this, into this unlimited, inconceivable cloud of emotional power in the world. This emotion that perhaps created the world because it couldn't contain itself without a world. All of this emotion that we can never appreciate and that we can never understand, God spatters little bits of it out and says to different prophets, you want to know a little bit of what it's like to be God and love? Here. This is what love looks like from my perspective. Just a little taste so it doesn't burst your heart. Let me give you a little taste of anger. Iradei, Heschel calls it. Let me give you a little taste of, of each emotion, of each response that I have to different things that I see in the world. And maybe if you stand in a marketplace and scream about the widow who doesn't have any food, people will understand something, not just of how claimed they should feel, 
or of how motivated they should be to construct a social justice. But maybe they will understand something of how I feel. It's part of God's desire to be revealed in the world. This is Heschel's notion of pathos. Now, let me tie this up a little bit. We're coming to the close. Let me tie this up a little bit and connect it to the, to the themes that I, that I introduced at the beginning. We have a very, very powerful structure in our mentalities of religion as a legislative system that, or, that originates in God. Right? We have a very, very clear sense of divine commandment, right? which says, I want you to do this. And Judaism has been grappling, I think, in many, many different ways over the generations with what we're supposed to do about that. Because with a written law and an evolving history, we have to keep on applying and reapplying Jewish law. And as we keep on applying and reapplying Jewish law, we have to be conscious of the fact that as we do that, we claim to speak in the name of God. So when I tell you that you can't put your milky spoon in your fleshy dishwasher, I'm Moses on Mount Sinai saying it to you, right? Now, that's dangerous. That is, a, that is a very, very difficult problem. It looks as if God dropped a historical bombshell into Jewish history by imposing upon us a notion of our legal system as being divine. Now, in a world where there is a Jewish state and where there is Jewish power and where many, many aspects of our lives touch upon fundamental religious concerns, and I'm not going to list them here, but I'll just give you a taste. Some of the questions about Shabbat observance in public in Israel are examples of this. But there are many, many, many more. So many more. I've got a headache just thinking about them. But when we think about those issues and we think about religion, as this powerful force of divine legislation, we pay two terrible prices. One, we end up expressing our own opinions as if they were the opinions of God. That's a really dangerous price. But there's another very dangerous price, which is when we express our own opinions as if they were the opinions of God, we actually forget God. And Heschel's fundamental contribution is a contribution of a theology that is built on pathos, not power. It's a God who does not control the world. It's a God who does not invade the world and throw his weight around. It's a God whose majesty, whose glorious, whose glorious grandness is rooted in the emotions which go unbridled in him that defy any kind of conception of what it's like to live in the world. A teeny taste of it, when implanted in the soul of a prophet, makes, makes, it, it makes you look nuts. But that, that flavor, that taste, creates for us a sense of pathos, an empathy for God. So it's actually a, a Hasidic idea. Heschel was very deeply rooted in the Hasidic tradition. That God needs us. He doesn't, just, he doesn't just command us. He needs us. He loves us. He's angry with us. 
He wants to be loved by us. He actually might, might want us, the Hasidic tradition gives us this option, he actually might want us to be angry at him too. Right? It's like the Arab Yom Kippur story. You know, the Hasid who discovers that God is angry with him at this, 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 and this, and this, and this, and this, and this. So what am I going to do in Yom Kippur? So he says, okay, God, hang on. I'm angry with you about this, 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 and this, and this. Let's negotiate. Okay? And that can be a very powerful way of experiencing the prayers of, of Yom Kippur. Now, before I finish, I'd like to give you a, a, a little, little insight, which I think is, again, in one of those wonderful opening passages. Look at the second handout. This one is taken. This one is taken from Heschel's. One of Heschel's. I think there were three really great masterpieces in Heschel's writing: the Prophets, God in Search of Man, and a third book that he wrote in Hebrew called Torah Min Hashemayim Shel Hadorot, which was translated into English by Gordon Tucker in a slightly abridged version, and he called it the 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 what did he call it? The Heavenly Torah as, refract as refracted through the generations, I think is his translation. It's a big fat volume and it's his analysis of rabbinic Judaism. There are all sorts of smaller books by Heschel as well. His, his analysis of Shabbat, the Sabbath, is, is enough to make me cry even when I haven't been to the swimming pool. But let's just have a quick look at, 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 at his opening line for God in Search of Man. God in Search of Man, by the way, do you hear the title? God in Search of Man, you get it? It resonates, okay? This, is, this again relates very profoundly to the notion of pathos. God in search of man, right? You get it. Okay. Now here he's going to say something. He's going to say something again to American, to American religious sensibility. And he's going to say something to a, a power-structured religious sensibility. He's going to say something to a potentially... Um, indifferent religious sensibility, to a, a religious sensibility that does not empathize with the pathos of God and is therefore not sufficiently moved to be a little bit more like my friend Amos. It is customary to blame secular science and anti-religious philosophy for the eclipse of religion in modern society. So there's a secular world, there's a Greek world, there's, a, there's an American world. He's writing this as a new immigrant arriving in America, looking at the society around him, looking at what he experiences as a religious vacuousness. It's not because people are not performing the mitzvot according to orthodox standards, but because people are not empathizing. There's no religious experience in the synagogue, in the temple services. He's looking for something, I don't have a better word for it, he's looking for something with juice. He's looking for something with ruach. And the assumption is, oh, it's their fault. Look how Heschel gives it a twist. He always does. That's what I love about him. It would be more honest to blame religion for its own defeats. Religion declined not because it was refuted. There's nothing here to refute. It doesn't make scientific statements but because it became irrelevant, dull, oppressive, insipid. You can imagine how much the religious establishment at the Jewish Theological Seminary adored him for publishing this. <laughs> when faith is completely replaced by creed, 
worship by discipline, love by habit, when the crisis of today is ignored because of the splendor of the past, when faith becomes an heirloom rather than a living fountain, when religion speaks only in the name of authority rather than with the voice of compassion, its voice becomes meaningless. If I've accomplished anything in this lecture, then you will be able to read that paragraph without my having to explain it to you. It's not about philosophy. It's not about power. It's about pathos. Thank you very, very much. I'm happy. You can say I'm happy to answer questions. If anyone wants to, I'm happy to answer if anybody wants to ask a few quick questions, um, Dr. Isaacs will stay. We'll get the air conditioning up a little bit, and uh, we'll take a few. George, you go ahead. Hi, George. I've seen you before. Hi. Besides your friend uh, Amos, what about those in the world? Certainly other people must have some inkling as to the understanding of some of the prophets or some of their writings. Uh, Two-part question. I'm, I'm going to have to ask you to be a little bit more explicit. Who are you talking about? I think the point of the prophets is not that we don't understand them, right? It's not that we don't understand them. Just like an, a sound which is an octave too high is not a sound that we don't hear. It's that we don't completely understand them. It's that they, they, they're reaching out to us in a place that dis, from a place that disturbs us. We, need, we understand enough to be disturbed, Right? We understand there's another conception. We understand there's an other there's anotherness. I think of the prophets a little bit like that Buddhist finger, you know, pointing pointing at the moon. Right? There's 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 a there's something there's something else implied and implicated by the prophetic experience. And I think that I think that the appropriate response to people like my friend Amos <laughs> is one of appreciation. I think he needs a lot of love. He needs a lot of gentility. He needs a lot of protection. Um, but but there is, I think there is a voice there that reverberates across history that we need to learn how to listen to, even if we can't follow it. It's powerless leadership. It's an incredible idea. Powerless leadership. Yes. Thank you. I've never heard that before. <laughs> so because I'm thinking of that, I mean that the, the prophet is emotional. You know, they just uh, just can sense that injustice wherever they see it and they feel that. Like a young person at a college campus who just their their world is open and they see all these injustices, they didn't know that. But that later as you grow older, you learn about the limits of humanity and what we can accomplish and what we can't accomplish. Is is that a little bit of Society beats us into submission. <laughs> I remember saying to my my um, poor fellow, I think back into it now. But my when my oldest son went into Kita Aleph, 
And I said to, the, I said to his teacher, just don't do any damage. I don't care what else. <laughs> just don't ruin it. Um, but yes, I think, I think there is, I think, I think we have to recognize that um, prophets are, are, are few and far between. Um, if, we, if we had a society of prophets, we wouldn't have a society. I don't think, I don't think the purpose of the prophet is to provide a model f for society. And I think our experience through life, if this is what I hear you saying, our experience, is, our experience through life um, gives, us, gives us more and more of a sober sense of what we can and cannot accomplish. Um, and it's very rare for somebody to make it through to their adult life and retain a prophetic consciousness. It really is very, very unusual and not necessarily what you wish on your children. You know, being a prophet is not a good job for a Yiddish boy, right? It's not, you know, it's not what you want. However, however, I think what Heschel is suggesting and we, we, it's there, it's there, it's not, it doesn't need to happen over and over and over again, it's there, it's on the bookshelf. It's on the bookshelf, but we don't read it. We don't understand it, and when we do understand it, we tend to misconstrue it. And what Heschel is saying is that our tradition accompanies us with a literature that will allow us to have a sensitivity to that prophetic consciousness. I think we need to make clear distinction between our ambitions and our prayers. And we need to have something of our prophetic consciousness in our prayers that we cannot realize in the contexts of our ambitions. But if you are a person with both ambition and prayer, then you've been touched by the prophetic consciousness in a way that gives a place in your life for the divine pathos. And that's what Heschel is talking about. He's not saying be a prophet. You're not the prophet. You're the audience of prophecy. Be addressed by the prophet. That's the idea. Yes, Nira. I don't have a rabbi in my shul. It's precisely the point. We don't have a rabbi in my shul. I have nothing against rabbis if there are any in the room. Um, but um, I think that there is a. I think I don't want to start criticizing structures of, of, of communal life. We're so we're so overwhelmed by creed and doctrine, which are very very important, by the way. We're so overwhelmed by them that we've lost our ability for religious spontaneity. And that, that experience of religious spontaneity, it needs to be there. There's a tremendous role to be, there's a tremendous amount to be said for creed and doctrine too. I'll tell you a great story. Saul Lieberman, who was the, you know, the intellectual tower who ruled over the roost of the Jewish Theological Seminary in, in Heschel's day. One day he had Yortzeit. Okay, it's a very famous story. And Lieberman gathered together all the different members of the Jewish studies faculty to get them all together so, he's, so as he could have a minion, right? And there were nine, there were nine men assembled in his office, right? So one of, them, one of the people who was there came over to him and said, well, I know that, that Professor Heschel is in, is, is, is in his office. Shall I go and get him? And, um, and uh, Lieberman answered, Heschel effervesces. He doesn't come to prayers. So, and there's a problem there. 
There's a problem there because when you're that kind of an individualist, there is a problem there. Institutionalized religion has a role and you can't build an institutionalized religion on, on a character like Heschel or on a character like Isaiah. Right? And that's why there's this huge struggle. I'm talking about this in another lecture, but there's a huge struggle over Moshe Rabbeinu. Right? Moshe Rabbeinu. Why not Moshe Hanavi? There's this huge struggle over Moses. Was he the prophet or the rabbi? It's a fundamental struggle. And there's also a fundamental struggle over who the rabbi is. Is the rabbi a down-to-earth legislator? I'm talking about the rabbinic, the rabbis of Chazal. And Heschel's reading of the rabbi is this kind of proto-prophet. He has a very, very original and exciting rereading of what rabbinic Judaism is all about as well. But clearly this tension between what, what you can think of as you know regular prayer, turn up, be there, 7.15, before the sun sets, or whatever it is, say these words at this right time and open your heart to God, overwhelmed in awe by the beauty of creation. You know, these two poles... These two poles are constantly in a, in a toggle with each other. I don't think you can, you can hold on to either one on its own. You need to find a balance between them. But you also need to understand that in order for there to be a balance between them, there need to be some very special people in the world who don't live that balance. Because otherwise there's no balance. And Heschel was one of those people who didn't live the balance. And he paid a tremendous personal price for it but there's wonderful inspiration to be drawn from it. Anyone else? One last final question. Anyone else? Uh, David. There's a, there's a tremendous difference between Isaiah, except for the selection of, of uh, chapters, between Isaiah, or let's take Amos for that purpose. Amos and Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a prophet that reacts to prophecy as a result of personal Amos, we don't know. We know he was a shepherd. Uh, that's about it. But there is no... So there is a total difference. It, it was Jeremiah really this exotic person that you are talking about that is trying to relate to God? Or is he just a politician that is reacting to a, a conditions and events that happen in, in his lifetime? Have you noticed the things that God does to Jeremiah to turn him into a prophet? Jeremiah is, is he's in post-trauma. I don't think he's even in post-trauma. He's just in trauma. And he's traumatized by... He's trauma... Of course. Of course he challenges God. That's part of the experience of the prophet. It's part of the experience of the prophet is to confront God. Those are one of the emotions. That's one of the emotions. Heschel analyzes it beautifully. And the experience that Jeremiah has to go through in order to create a sense of that empathy, right? I, I won't describe it here because it's rather unpleasant, right? But Jeremiah has to go through some very traumatic experiences that God pushes him through. And ultimately, Jeremiah is the one who sees an, a, 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 a destruction that's on the way. And he's screaming, we're going to be destroyed. We're gonna, the sky is falling, you remember that? He's screaming that the world is about to be destroyed, that everything is about to collapse and nobody sees it. That is a fundamental experience of non-political religious pathos. I have a powerless encounter with a reality that I cannot change. And from that powerless encounter, I generate a powerful empathy. Right? I, think that, I think that Jeremiah is a wonderful example of it. I'd say the same thing for Amos, by the way, who's contextualized again in a political crisis. You're right to compare them. They both are contextualized within a political crisis. But I think we might be going into details 
that are better better discussed, the two of us together, rather than opened up for everyone else. So thank you very, very much. I hope you managed to digest your lunches. <laughs>